Well, again, welcome. And uh, we have been working through Ezekiel. Uh, this is our fifth week at it. And uh, as I've said before, the, the theme of Ezekiel is restoration. But uh, we have essentially had judgment for four weeks straight. And we are turning a corner uh, today. Uh, but what we have seen thus far, just as a review of where we've been in the first three chapters of Ezekiel, we met Ezekiel and heard his commission that God gave him essentially to bring the hammer of judgment, uh, whether people listened to him or not. Chapters 4 through 11, we uh, saw Ezekiel live out in portrayal the besiegement of Jerusalem and its destruction uh, in a number of ways. And then we, uh, Ezekiel was given a vision of the temple and the abominations that were going on there and the removal of God's glory uh, from the temple. Chapters 12 to 24 uh, were almost exclusively judgments then against Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem, just one after another after another. Pictures of how unholy she had become. Hard to read and to, to see what uh, the abominations of, of Israel and Jerusalem. And then last week in chapters 25 to 32, uh, we heard about God's judgments against the nations. Remember that sort of fish hook of nations around uh, Jerusalem from Ammon to Moab to Edom to, to Egypt uh, to Philistia to Tyre and Sidon. All of these nations that God had uh, laid his hand of judgment on. And today we turn. Uh, we have had only glimpses, really, of, of restoration, of God's good promises to his people to gather them from the nations, to bring them back, to save them, to reunite them. We've only seen glimpses, sort of like a dolphin breaking through the water every once in a while. They spend 90% of their time underwater, and they're like, whoa, what was that? And, uh, but now we're going to see more and more. You'll feel the weight of this change as we go through these chapters today, and particularly the last nine chapters when we uh, finish um, in our last session. But that's where we're at right now in uh, Ezekiel chapter 33. Uh, as, as is per the norm, we have much to do and not enough time. Uh, so you will benefit from enjoying and reading this between Sundays as well. You could make it a Mother's Day adventure to read Ezekiel 33 to 39 to your wife this afternoon. Okay, it's an idea. <clears throat> <laughs> so chapter 33 is this a transitional chapter. God's going to use this to remind the house of Israel of some key points that he's already mentioned before he moves forward. That's what the redux is in your heading. It's just a repeat, um, an echo of a previous teaching. And so in, in uh, uh, chapter 33, verses 1 to 9, we have a redux of the watchman. Uh, story that we had back in chapter 3 the first time. The principles of the watchman, you'll remember, I hope, uh, that the watchman's job is not only to watch but to warn. And, uh, and so the principles are given in, in verses 1 to 6, but let me read verses 7 to 9 in Ezekiel 33. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, 
you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And again, so there's something here of the weight of having God's truth and being ready to warn, being ready to be vocal about the, the warnings that God has given us one with another. So we, we have the example here, Ezekiel, of given this specific role with Israel. He was given in chapter 3, and it's restated here in chapter 33. But we have this amongst us. It's part of our responsibility one to another. When we see a brother or a sister who's in sin or someone who's, who's caught in abominations, even people you love dearly, we have a responsibility to, to warn. Uh, if you have the truth, you need to speak the truth. Okay. Um, next, in verses 10 through 20, we have a, a repeat or an echo of chapter 18 where uh, God tells us through Ezekiel that each person is responsible for his or her own sin. So we're reminded of this principle that each one lives or dies in accordance with his own rebellion against or obedience to the Lord. So let me read verse 11 from Ezekiel 33. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked... Turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? That will sound familiar. If somebody just read that out of the blue, you would say, that is from Ezekiel 18. But here it is in, in 33. And then get down to uh, verse 20 at the end of this section, where God says, O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. Emphasis there on each. And so God is just reminding uh, Israel, uh, this is how it works. And he's reminding us. And why do we need reminding? Because we forget. That's right. That's why we need reminding. Uh, um, if, if we were able to read the Bible once and, and snap it shut and say, okay, I got it, uh, that would be spectacular. <laughs> but our, our failure of our memory is actually a blessing because we are drawn back to his word and back to his word and back to his word over and over again. Um, and the same here uh, with Ezekiel. Okay, and then the remainder of this chapter is the news of Jerusalem's fall finally comes. It's been seven and a half years since chapter one, and um, the Jerusalem has fallen, and now a fugitive comes we talked about this earlier, and Ezekiel's mouth is opened, and he is given two oracles, uh, one against the Judahites who are remaining in the land even after Jerusalem has fallen, and one to the exiles who are with him. So look at these with me, verses 23 and 24, first against the Judahite survivors. The word of the Lord came to me, this is Ezekiel 33, 23. And now 24, son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel keep saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he got possession of the land. But we are many. Surely 
the land is surely the land is given to us to possess. And then God goes through in verses 25 and 26 the, the litany of abominations that these people continue to um, do. And after each one says, so you shall possess the land? The, the, the rhetorical question is, of course not. Uh, you will not. And verses 27 to 29, God gives the promise to destroy these proud, these prideful survivors by sword, by beasts, and by pestilence. Verses 30 to 33, then, is the second oracle that, that brings us to the end of chapter 33. So let me read those verses. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, they say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, that is God's judgment even on these exiles who are listening, who are sitting and listening with smiling faces, but will not do it, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. I'm reminded of James 1, uh, where the call is to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Uh, James 1.23 speaks of the man who is a hearer and not a doer, is like the man who looks in a mirror and then goes away and just completely forgets what he looks like. Um, and, and so it is with, with these exiles. They, they seem on outward appearance to be happy and, and thrilled to be part of the, uh, hearing the prophet, but as soon as they walk away, they are unchanged. So there is a danger that we're, we're called to at the end of this chapter. <clears throat> chapter 34 is our next section. It is one of the sheepiest chapters in the Bible, together with, together with John 10 and maybe some Psalms. Uh, we hardly have any sheep, any shepherds really anywhere in Ezekiel, and they just, they're just stumbling all over each other in Ezekiel 34. They are everywhere. So verses 1 to 6, um, Ezekiel speaks of shepherds who are not shepherds. Verse 2, they feed only themselves. Verse 3, they prey on the sheep. Verse 4, they ignore the needs of the sheep. And the result, verses 5 and 6, is the sheep are scattered, they are unprotected, they are vulnerable. Verses 7 through 10, God is getting their attention. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Essentially, he says, I'm against you, you're fired, and I will rescue my sheep. And then you see in verses 11 through 16 what God will do. That he will search and seek and rescue his sheep in verses 11 and 12. He will bring them together. He will gather them. He will feed them. They will graze in safety. Verses 13 and 14. Verses 15 and 16. They will rest. They will be nurtured. They will be strengthened. I will feed them Injustice. But in the midst of this serene uh, setting and statement comes 
the statement in the middle of 16. Get my eyes there. <clears throat> I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. And so it turns out that not all sheep are sheep. You see it in verse 17. He's going to judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. That, um, that there is not a uniformity in the sheep. Um, but what will be uniform down in verse 23 is that there will be one shepherd, one from the line of David, a shepherd, a servant, and a prince put over them. Uh, clearly a, a, a commentary on the coming of the Messiah, the king in the line of David to rule over all of God's sheep. And finally, the last section of this, verses 25 through 31, God speaks of his covenant of peace. In verses 25 to 29, speaking of peace and security, the increase of the land and deliverance from all enemies. And finally... Uh, in verse 30, see, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. Verse 31, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Um, so a, a, a beautiful uh, progression through this chapter of God's purposes in shepherding his sheep. And, and some of the first statements of sort of a permanent or coming future eternal, it seems, or some status that's going to stick. I will be their God. They will be my sheep. Period. Full stop. Okay. We're moving on. Chapter 35 into the middle of chapter 36 is the tale of two mountains. Uh, one of them, uh, we saw this last week, is called Seir, which is in the land of Edom. And then the mountains of, of Israel we will have in chapter 36. But, but chapter 35 first. Verse 2. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. And there are a number of, of judgments uh, laid out against the Edomites. But look in verse 5, and you can get some of the flavor of this. You cherished perpetual enmity. Remember, we looked in Psalm 137, uh, I think verse 7 last week, and, and we saw that the Edomites were like cheerleaders uh, sitting in the bleachers cheering on uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, tear it down, tear it down to its very foundations. This was their attitude as they watched um, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon uh, come against Jerusalem and, and Judah. Um, back here in this chapter now, um, th that's described as being in perpetual enmity. And verse 9, God tells them that I will make you a perpetual desolation. Again, judging them according to their own ways. Verse 10, you said these two countries, that's Israel and Judah, shall be mine. Verse 11, I will deal with you according to your anger and according to your envy. Verses 12 and 13, I have heard all the revilings, God says. I have heard it. 
And verse 15, as you rejoiced over the desolation of Israel, so I will deal with you. And God's purpose, we've only said it maybe 35 or 40 times, uh, but we'll say it a few more times yet. Look at verse 9, the end of it. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 12, look at the end of it. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 15, look at the end of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Uh, God couldn't be more crystal clear about what he seeks to accomplish here uh, in every action that he, that he takes. And now uh, chapter 36, the, the other mountain, the mountains of Israel. Verses 1 to 15. Read verse 1, or look at it with me. And you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel. And say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 3, precisely because they, that is, the Edomites, made you desolate, precisely because they made you desolate, I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations. And now listen to the contrast in in verses uh, 8 through 15. But you, O mountains of Israel, some of the things listed here are life and fruit and activity and inhabitation, uh, rebuilding. The end of uh, verse 11, God declares over the land of Israel, I will do more good to you than ever before. There will be a flourishing in the land and a removal of all reproach, the promises given to Israel when he brings them back into the land. All right, that ends the first side of your handout if you're following along on your own sheet. So let's turn it over and uh, vindication via vivification. Forgive me for that. Uh, that had different words until about four o'clock yesterday, but I couldn't help myself. <laughs> um, and we'll get to what those, what those words mean if it is baffling uh, to you. But we're in the rest of chapter 36. Um, Verses 16 to 18, I know, I know I told you that we've been talking about restoration, but it's not purely 100% there yet. It's, not, it's, it's a mix of, of God reminding God's people of how wicked they have been and what he has done and then what he will do. And in fact, here in verses um, 16 to 21, he reminds them again how Israel had defiled herself, both at home and abroad. Uh, let me look at, let's look at verse 18, 36, 18. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land. This is his people. And for the idols with which they had defiled it. Verse 20. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In, in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. Yet they go out from his land. And so now let me go on and read verses 21 to 23. God continues, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, 
which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So we're stopping here and we're pretending for a moment we don't know what the next verses are. And we should be shaking in our boots. Right, because when God says, I'm about to vindicate my holy name, and he has just given a laundry list of your abominations in the land and how you have, when you went out to the nations, you profaned my name among the nations. And God is saying, I am about to vindicate my holy name before the nations through you. And they should be thinking, you've, you've already destroyed the land. You've already destroyed Jerusalem. What's left? Are you going to destroy us from within the nations where we've been scattered? Can you, can you feel that tension uh, as we wait for verse 24? This is terrifying. If you don't know the rest of Ezekiel 36, right now you're terrified of what, what are you going to do, God, to vindicate your holiness because we are an unholy people. So let's read about what he is going to do. Verses 24 to 27. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Wow. This is how God is going to vindicate himself. He is going to make these dead people alive. That's vivification, being made alive. So now you get the title of the section, right? God is vindicating his holy name by taking these people and making them alive. That is just glorious. I can't, I can't yeah, I, I can't explain it to myself how glorious this is. You should be stunned when you read verses 24 through 27 in the context of the rest of this chapter, how glorious it is what God is doing <clears throat> and he says, again, further down there in 28 to 30, that they will flourish in the land and they will have a repentant heart in verse 31. And then again, God puts a bow on it in verse 32. This is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Verses 33 to 35, he speaks of the land being rebuilt like a Garden of Eden. And verses 36 through 38, that the nations shall know that I am the Lord. The land will be filled with people. So God continues his same purpose uh, here. Um, so takeaways here, we need to stop and just, just think and praise and worship hear what, what we read. God is, is clarifying not only his actions, but his motives. 
And he is showing that he is sovereign over his people, that he will not let them go forever. But he's also guarding us against a couple wrong motives or understandings of how God works. One, that uh, we would have a, a wrong understanding of the Lord, that he's just really, really blindly angry, and, and he's just ravaging through the nations you know, like a teenager with a baseball bat, um, just, just destroying without any purpose whatsoever. And not so. We, we see God working very particularly in each nation and in each person's life within each of those nations for his glory. A wrong understanding that gets corrected here, number two, is that God is not saving Israel, not bringing them back because Israel was so great. Yeah, they were, they were not that. They were not all that. And neither are we. Right? The Lord does not save someone because they're all that, because they're wonderful. Not even because you can potentially become wonderful. <laughs> uh, God saves sovereignly. We call this, another, another couple big words, monergistic soteriology. Monergism just means the work of one. Okay? Rather than synergism. We know, we know that word because we use that all the time about you know, things, two things working together have synergy. Here, when God saves, there's no one working to help him. He is saving out of his own will and his own will alone. And that's what soteriology means, just a fancy word for salvation. Right? So when, when we see someone saved, when you, if you're a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, and you, are, you will remember a time when you made a decision for Christ. And that's true. But what had happened before that was God drew you, and he loved you first before you had any love for him. And the same thing is, is on display here. Yahweh <clears throat> rattles off over a dozen I will statements uh, through this section, seven of them just in those four Verses uh, 24 to 27, let me read them again. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is great and glorious. And, and there should be other scriptures that should be ringing in your head. Salvation is of the Lord. Not just a, that's not just a, a great slogan. It's true. Salvation is of the Lord. It is from him. Right? We should trigger our mind to think of Romans 11.36, right? For from him and through him and to him are all things, not to us. It's not for your sake, Israel, that I'm about to act. Okay. This is why when we boast, we boast in the Lord because salvation is of the Lord. We don't boast in ourselves. Okay. We could sit and spin in Ezekiel 36 all week. But we've got to move on. 37, bones and sticks. Bones and sticks. Uh, 
the first, you, you know at least part of this chapter well um, because of great, great songs, right? That the foot, ankle bone's connected to the foot bone and... Yeah, okay. Anyway, verses 1 to 3, uh, Ezekiel's given a vision and a question. He sees a valley or a plain, we don't know which the word really means, uh, littered with bones, with dry, sun-bleached bones, not even skeletons, just bones scattered. And the question comes from God to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gave the right answer, you know, you know, O Lord. Let me read verses 4 to 6. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And then right before Ezekiel's eyes, just as the Lord had promised. Here it is. It's happening right before his very eyes. And in verse 11, God explains the picture. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. Indeed, we are cut off. And God repeats then his promises to bring Israel from her grave in verses 12 to 14, and seals it with, I have spoken and I will do it. Great uh, section and great picture of God, again, um, monergistically bringing to life his people. So those are the bones, and here are the sticks. Uh, the second half of the chapter, let me read verses 15 to 17. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Take a stick and write on it for Judah and for the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick so that they may become one in your hand. So you get the picture. Two sticks, evidently small enough that you can hold two of them in one hand. Right? And so Ezekiel is to take them and to hold them in, in some sense so that his hand is like the union, so it looks like there's one stick. Um, and the, the point here, Judah, of course, we already know, we think of that's the land immediately south of Jerusalem was, was mainly Judah's uh, portion in the land. Um, Ephraim was one of the areas immediately north of Jerusalem, it's where Bethel, where Shiloh uh, were, some of the prominent uh, cities of the northern kingdom. And so God is, is giving a picture to Ezekiel that there's going to come a time where you will no longer be two lands. At this point in time, they were zero lands, of course. Right? They, they had been one, and then they were two, and then after 722, then they were one again because of the northern kingdom had, had gone away and had been if infiltrated by people from many nations. And now with Jerusalem gone, then there's zero. Um, and God says, I will make you again one. Um, he tells them, uh, not only in verses 19 to 23, of his plan to bring people out from the nations where they've been scattered, but to unify them 
So verses uh, 22 to 28. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned. I will cleanse them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. Verse 24, my servant David shall be their king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever forever and my and david my servant shall be their prince forever i will make a covenant of peace with them it shall be an everlasting covenant with them and i will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore my dwelling place shall be with them and i will be their god and they shall be my people then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And you should, you should feel the weight of, of, this, of what God is speaking of here, that it's, it's not merely a, a bringing together of the people as though that weren't enough, but there is a reunification. And now we, we're starting to see forevermore and eternal language start coming into uh, these prophecies. One land, one king, one God, and one everlasting covenant. And still working towards the same end. Um, look at verse, the end of verse 6. You shall know that I am the Lord. Verses 13 and 14. You shall know that I am the Lord. Verse, middle of verse 14. You shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 28. The end of the chapter. The nations will know that I am the Lord. Um, so the, to, to sort of tie up this chapter in Ezekiel, the bones image is to remind Israel they are not cut off. They are, though they may be dry, sun-bleached bones right now, the Lord will raise them. He will bring his own back. And the sticks uh, is actually for the nations. You see that in verse 28. The nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Okay. Yep, that's where we're at right now. Um, and uh, let's get into the last two chapters. Gog. I know that many of you have been waiting for this. Gog and Magog. <laughs> um, these two chapters are... are are marked out clearly. Um, we have the introduction of, of these new characters, and then they are just gone. Uh, and we'll talk more about that at the, at the end of this. But let me read the first three verses of Ezekiel 38. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face towards Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Okay, so we need to get a little bit of history under our feet on this. We don't run into Gog every day. Um, and so <clears throat> chapter 38, 2, 39, 1, refer to him as the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. We don't run into Meshach and Tubal every day. Um, 
And a note, if you've got an older NASB uh, from the 77 or 95 uh, vintage, um, you will see Roche in there as well. It will say something like the Prince of Roche, Meshach, and Tubal. Um, there, there are some other translations that take it that way as well, but that word Roche is really much better understood to be an adjective meaning the chief. So instead of the, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, it's the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Because otherwise, we don't know a lot about Rosh at all. Meshach and Tubal, we do know, however. Uh, you don't need to turn to it, but jot down Genesis 10, verse 2. The sons of Japheth, this is coming out of, out of the ark. Japheth was son of Noah, right? So the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. So these three guys, um, well, Meshech, Tubal, and Magog are three of the grandsons of Noah, sons of Japheth. And uh, the vast majority of those names in the Bible are here in these two chapters, uh, Ezekiel 38, 39, back in Genesis 10, and in Revelation 20. Um, so, uh, where Satan is deceiving the nations to gather against God's people. So, most associate Magog, Meshach, and Tubal with something far to the north of Israel. And that's, in, that's from this text. Uh, maybe from modern-day Turkey, maybe even wrapping up around the Black Sea to, to uh, Georgia, uh, to Ukraine even, or even Russia. Um, Rosh is part of the reason why for a long time people with those translations you know, assumed that this was a direct uh, reference to Russia. Um, so, so that sort of sets the, the, where we're at here and who God is talking to. So God, in verses 4 to 6... Uh, is going to get immediately declare his sovereignty over Gog and all the nations with him. You see in verse 4, I will turn you about, I'm going to put hooks in your jaw, and I will bring you out. Because God has a purpose for Gog. And still speaking to him, he gives him that mission in verses 7 to 9. Uh, keep ready. Uh, after many days, though, this is the beginning of verse 8, in the latter years... Uh, after Israel is secure, note these tenses as I read parts of this from verse 8. After Israel is restored, and they were gathered, and they had been, they were brought, and they now dwell securely. So whatever is described here is something that's after what, is, what has already been described of Israel being gathered securely together. Then uh, Gog will be brought, and in verse 9, to advance upon this land like a storm, like a cloud, like the sands of the sea. Verses 10 to 13, we have Gog's wicked thoughts and intentions are stirred up to conquer. And then in verses 14 to 16, we have another description of, that's given to us of this attack to come. And you can see in verse 15, You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north. There you go. There's our, okay, why do we think of north? Well, because the Bible tells us that. 
Verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. You see, you hear the theme and repeating? God is vindicating himself uh, through his own actions, through God's uh, people, through God, the, the enemies of God's people. So a question for you from verse 16. Is Gog rallying his armies against Israel or does Yahweh bring Gog against the land of Israel? Yes, that's right. That's the right answer. Yes, yeah. Uh, and, and so this is the confluence of, of the uh, sinful actions of people and the righteous actions of God um, and his steadfast purpose. That's right. Okay, and this is nothing new for Yahweh, right? He, he calls Assyria, his, he whistles for Assyria to come. Uh, he, he calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant in, in bringing about uh, the destruction that he did. Uh, of Pharaoh, you don't need to turn there, but Exodus 14, 1 to 4. Exodus 14, 1 to 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiaroth between Migdal and the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Okay, so we, this is the setup that we have. Verses 17 to 23, back in Ezekiel 38, gives us Gog's defeat. So on that day, um, we have God's blazing wrath, an upheaval experienced by all. Verse 20, uh, 21 and 22, God summons a sword, pestilence, and bloodshed. Uh, verse 22, rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur come down to destroy uh, this army of Gogs. Verse 23, So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 39 just continues the, the same story. Verses 1 and 2, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn you about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. And so God promises then in verses 3 to 6 that he will destroy Gog, make his army food for the birds and the beasts, and he will send fire upon not only Gog's armies, but on Gog's lands, right, the north, that's way, that way, uh, to Gog's land of Magog. Verses 7 and 8, And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nation shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That, that is the day of which I have spoken. And now, interestingly, in the rest or the next chunk of this chapter, 
we have a detailed cleanup duty that goes on. Verses 9 to 16, there are so many weapons left over from this destroyed army that they collect collect them all up and they have enough kindling and wood that they don't have to cut down any trees for seven years to build fires to to cook their meals or to keep themselves warm. Um, And the spoil, the god of the great reversals, spoil is taken from those who come to take spoil. The plunderers are plundered. And verse, then verses 11 to 17, there is this great elaborate effort to comb through the entire land to make sure that every bone left over from those warriors is buried. That in such a contrast, if you remember earlier in this book, um, God speaking through Ezekiel of how the, the people had desecrated the land and, and the abominations on every hilltop with, with idols and sacrifices to, to gods that are not gods. And here, the people of Israel are meticulous, think of it, to go through their entire land, this, this whole valley or wherever it is that this, that this army was destroyed, and to cleanse the land by making sure that every bone of every wicked warrior that remained is buried. The, the contrast is, is really striking. Verses 17 to 20 uh, then give us an invitation or give, um, give the animals an invitation to this horrific feast. And I, I actually can't just, I just can't read, read all of it, but let me read you a bit of it. Verse 17, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field, assemble and come. Gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel. whole bunch of graphic stuff, verses 18 and 19. Verse 20, And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God. So now while this seems out of order chronologically. It is, the, it is God's great climax of his victory over the people who would destroy his own people. And it is a demonstration of God's supreme and sovereign rule over all nations, even over this chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Uh, the Lord is the king of kings. That's what it means when we say it. And he's demonstrating it here. Okay, Uh, verses 21 to 29, uh, we have vindication and restoration. Let me read a bit of 21 to 27. I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward, and the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hands of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery 
that they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land, and none shall make them afraid when I have brought them back from all the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands, and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. So some observations here. As I mentioned earlier, all is made about Gog and Magog and these armies, and it's a big deal. They're like the sands of the sea. They come like clouds. It's just like something that's, that's fully enveloping and unstoppable. And then just like, boop, it's gone. They're just gone. They're destroyed. It takes a little while to burn up all their weapons and to bury all their bones. But we just hear nothing more except that God's people dwell securely and God reigns supreme. Notice also, this is, this is a different term. We have heard over and over again about the people who loathe themselves for their wickedness with repentant hearts. Did you catch in verse 20? No. They shall forget. 26. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. This is, a, this is an advancement of repentant behavior, trusting that the Lord's forgiveness is true and sure. They've got their eyes off of even what they have been forgiven of and on the Lord. Okay, takeaways here. Um, the Lord reigns supreme. We know this. We have this climactic picture and this tone of finality that, that the people are going to live in security. And uh, we've had glimpses of this where, where some, some language used with the king of Tyre sounded like somebody who was not a human. <laughs> we have some language here uh, of the day of the Lord with Egypt. It certainly sounded very end of days-ish, and here this is just growing uh, in this passage. Um, maybe most remarkable, uh, we will spend just a little bit of time to finish this up, uh, many of these same chords are toned in Revelation 19 and 20 on either side of the passage about the millennium. And I won't make a ton of, ton of comments about it, but you just, we should just read them with me. So turn to Revelation 19, verse 17. Just remember the, the feast that the birds and the beasts were invited to, to destroy the, the army, or to, to feast on the destroyed army. So Revelation 19, 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, 
and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Right after that section, we have uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, about the millennium. And then in verse 7, so move over to Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Whoa, Gog and Magog. To gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Now we could spend the rest of the day sort of untangling this and piecing these together, but let me just end with uh, one commentator's description of it that I, I think I'm on board with. An event whose timing in the original prophecy is only vaguely set, quote, in the latter days, is now identified as the penultimate event in human history. The picture of national peace and tranquility is transformed into a portrait of universal peace. The foreign foe becomes a satanic and diabolical force. The divine victory is placed in the hands of the Messiah, the message that had originally been presented to the Jewish exiles to bolster their sagging hopes has been transformed into a message of hope for all of God's people. I think that's pretty okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, these are no coincidences to see these things uh, as Ezekiel starts talking more and more about the finality, the final state of secure state of God's people. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Ezekiel. Uh, we are stunned when we see the ways that you vindicate your holy name by saving and by destroying and by proving how awesome and great you are. Thank you for these chapters. And would we uh, rightly boast in you We pray in Jesus' name, amen.